The Tree of Tremendousness by Thomas Jackson, Chapter 3, Fennington, Episode 1, by Eckwoman. The village of Fennington, where I saw my first light, was of only moderate size. There were really only three thoroughfares, apart from the square at the centre of the village, Pig Lane, Black Lane and the Anstruther. I naturally knew the inhabitants of Black Lane, which was ours, better than I did those folk who lived on the other streets. On the one side, next door to our cottage, as you know, lived Mrs. Dobbs, and when he was at home, Mr. Dobbs, or Dobbsy, as he was always called, by his spouse. Mrs. Dobbs looked forward to her husband's return on leave from the sea with the greatest eagerness. Their cottage was spring-cleaned from top to bottom, the garden tidied up, coupons which had been hoarded against this glad day, royalty spent out. Dobbs is coming home tomorrow, Mrs. Dobbs would excitedly proclaim as the day loomed. It was invariable, however, that within 24 hours of Dobbs's homecoming, they would have embarked on furious arguments. Oaths and streets would float over our garden fence, china would be thrown, pails and buckets kicked. Just you go back to that old sea and stay there, and I hope you drown, Mrs. Dobbs would shout. Dobsey would then embark on immense drinking sprees at the Jolly Bricklayer in the village square and would roll back up the lane, reliving in vivid and dreadful detail the terrors of the Atlantic convoys, shouting, weeping, screaming and calling out for his drowned shipmates like a wandering lost Tibetan soul, howling disconsolately in the great bardo. He would sometimes mistakenly come up our path, thinking it was his own. My mother would gently take his arm, and he would be immediately quietened at the kindness of her touch. Thank you, ma'am. Very civil, very civil on you. Thank you very much, ma'am. Very civil, very civil. He and Mrs. Dobbs would then live in a state of armed neutrality until his leave was ended, and to the relief of them both, he went back to the sea. Always, as his leaves approached, Mrs. Dobbs hoped against all the lessons of experience that this time it would be different. But always another failure confirmed yet more inescapably their irredeemably incompatible condition. Then, towards the end of the war, his ship was torpedoed and he did drown. Mrs. Dobbs was inconsolable. She wept and wept, not just for the loss of dearest Dobbsy, but for love so much desired and so ineluctably unobtained. On the other side lived the Stanleys, a family of Londoners who come to Fennington, possibly seeking refuge from the police rather than Hitler, at the beginning of the war. The Stanleys were a dreadful example of the abyss into which it was possible to fall, minatory scarecrows, highwaymen swinging horribly on crossroads gibbets. 
They never cleaned their house. It was said that they kept a goat in one of their bedrooms. They had a bit of bread and dripping any old time instead of proper meals. They did a bit of this and a bit of that instead of proper jobs. Their kids had tied marks round their necks and knits. Mr. Stanley sported a lung condition attended by much coughing and sputtering and spreading of yet more germs over an already hygienically endangered area, which prevented him from making his contribution to his frequently and vociferously expressed regret to the valorous deeds of the armed services. Mrs. Stanley was as adept as any upper-class Victorian lady at avoiding house or indeed any other work, even escaping the pressure to help out with the war effort in a munitions factory, for which their extensive activities on the black market would in any case have left them little time. I was often warned by my mother, go on like this and you'll end up like the Stanleys. For all that, she was on good terms with them, and Mrs Stanley was often in our house borrowing utensils and other useful accessories to living, which their feckless ways had omitted to provide. I suppose, my mother would say, as she sterilised in boiling water, knives and forks that they borrowed. I suppose, like the publicans and sinners, they're just the sort of people Jesus would have gone about with, and we'll get them in heaven too. Since their sons, Norm and Ollie, were several years older than I was, there was no question of my playing with them. In any case, they were very unkind to me, and I was terrified of them. That's him, that's their blood they would sneer when they saw me. Oink, 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 we'll come and suck your dick, piglet. I had no idea what this meant, but I was certain that it was a most dreadful and terrible punishment, and I would run crying and shaking all over into my jungle house. Oink, 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 I would hear from over the fence. They had a genius for avoiding my mother, who never had any idea of all this, for I was ashamed to tell her a skill in escaping the attentions of authority that they doubtless acquired from their parents. Beyond the Stanleys, but in her case separated by the green belt of a grass meadow, was Miss Andrews, who lived in September Cottage, opposite another spinster called Miss Garland, who lived in a similar dwelling that had previously been known as Lavender Cottage, but had now been renamed by its present occupant as The Outpost. Wherever humanity is gathered together, that tendency to binary opposition that declares itself in such forms as Cavalier and Roundhead, or Oxford and Cambridge, or Whig and Tory, will, in some light mode of its universal application, be found. Miss Andrews and Miss Garland lived on the opposite sides of just such a dichotomous divide, following contradictory and incompatible forms of existence in the state of unmarried woman. They hated each other. Miss Andrews was the very type of George Orwell's old maid biking through the mist to church, although she actually walked there, in fact, with a quick scuttling gait, her tweedy skirts flapping about her bony body, as the church, in her case, was so close. Full of good works, jam-making, collecting old envelopes for our boys in Africa. They replaced the native black heathen as the major recipients of her charity. A crocheted example of Home Sweet Home, the proclaimed escutcheon on her wall. Her devotion was poured out on her two cats. 
The mundane operations of life were performed by her with the most maidenly and discriminative sensibility, and although her island of civilization was a very small isle indeed, it was nonetheless cherished for that. She ate and drank in the most modest ladylike way, entirely soundlessly, cooking her little finger with fetching delicacy as she sat poised on the edge of her chair. Dainty, willow-patterned cup in hand, wearing a coyly apologetic expression as if devastated to be caught in such a squalidly physical activity, thereby endowing even such a simple action as drinking a cup of tea with a repressed, erotic charge. Her existence was so far removed from the robust energies and coarse-giving and taking of the world, with its roaring lions and rampantly lusting unicorns, that her life would appear to have been lived in two dimensions rather than three. Her conversation was generously garnished with references to my brother, the accountant, you know and with nebulous conjurings of an undefined past, better suited by far to a lady of refinement and breeding than her present temporary and regrettable circumstances. One might have thought such an existence undistinguished and unremarkable, except that her life was given intense and furious purpose by her hatred for Miss Garland. That woman, that woman, so coarse, so unladylike. She would whisper confidingly, shudderingly unable to bring herself to name the recipient of her distaste, as one might quail and go pale when referring to the beast of the apocalypse, her spectacles flashing, her eyes glowing pink. The monstrously conceptualised object of this antipathy was reciprocally and equally heated in returning the emotion, but in a far more robust and loquacious manner. Miss Garland was a solidly built lady of red face, whiskery chin and closely cropped grey hair. She was devoted to the great outdoors. She was sometimes to be seen setting off on hikes, wearing khaki shorts, an unheard of thing for an adult female in the 1940s, even though Langirls had been wearing breeches for years. Accoutred with knobbly ash plant and knapsack on her back, loudly singing, I like to go a wandering along the mountain track, yo-ho, yo-ho, as if she were a Valkyrie, setting off to find the bodies of dead heroes in order to bring them back to Valhalla. She could not bear sentimentals like the Andrews woman, and was a loudly self-proclaimed atheist. Miss Andrews' delicately toned and refined religious faith must have recoiled in horror every time she heard Miss Garland throwing down the gauntlet to God in stentorian tones, as it might be Elijah challenging the priests of Baal from her front doorstep, loudly demanding, What about all the suffering in the war? How does a good God allow that? Answer me that, Andrews. I hope you're teaching that boy Woodcraft, she would shout to my mother. She passed. For educational value, you can't beat Woodcraft. She was, needless to say, intensely patriotic, though she did once endear herself to the neighbourhood by declaring, can't stand Huns and Nazis, but I will say one thing for them, at least they'd have put the Stanleys in a concentration camp. Thus, these two spinster ladies, 
each drawing a self-woven caricature tightly about her, and each in her own fashion, made the best accommodation that they could to a life lived and comforted by love. Did they lie awake at night, dreaming of some impossibly handsome warrior come home from the war to sweep them off to an utterly transformed and thrillingly significant existence? Miss Andrews, flying down our lane, hotly pursued by a randy flight sergeant who's come bursting through the tapestry, mad with love, her tightly bunned hair, streaming in the wind, plows undone, skirt awry, corsets abandoned in the phrasing. Miss Garland and a hugely muscled ex-chinnick or desert rat hacking their way through steaming Borneo jungles and fording rushing rivers, stretch out beside campfires under the flashing desert stars, swapping tips on woodcraft, while savagery, predatory beasts howl for their prey. The union of Miss Garland and the Chindit will be a marriage of true minds. But then again, perhaps the Chindits and Desert Rats, on seeing Miss Garland, had hastened back to their desert jungles, thanking their lucky stars they'd escaped her nuptial invitations and were still bachelors. Meanwhile, these two ladies did at least have each other. At the end of the lane, in much the biggest and most desirable residence, lived the Maxwells. As a result of my mother's growing friendliness with them, I was introduced to their daughter, June, a little girl of my own age, who would sometimes come to call on me as she liked playing mothers and fathers. Although I did not love her, no possibility of that, as I was already in love forever with Pam, I was willing to go along with these suppositious pretenses, since I regarded it in the way of my mother's enthusiasm for the Maxwells as bolstering a useful dynastic alliance between the two houses. June would bring her doll, which was called Baby, pretty soppy that, but women have to be humoured, and my pram, still retained from our shed from our own babyhood, would be wheeled out for new service. June would be fussing about the house, a fantasised replica of the Maxwell's abode, imagined to be on our back lawn, dusting this and polishing that, when I came home for my tea. By it, woman, have you got my tea yet? Coming, dear, coming, June would say, rushing about, putting out imaginary plates and knives on an imaginary table and carefully inspecting imaginary glasses for phantasmical specks of dust. What's this one? Tribe on onions? No, dear, it's steak and kidney pudding. I went to Pardita's for some fish, but they sold out. I hope you like it. Yeah, it's all right, champion, but more gravy next time. Had a nice day, dear. Eh, day all right. Bobby does all right. Not bad, not bad. What did you do, dear? Oh, a bit of this, a bit of that. Got around, you know. In fact, 
I'd been on a voyage of exploration up the Amazon with Peter, but just as well, not to tell women everything. June might want to come too. After tea, we would go to bed together and lie next to each other under a bath towel, which did service as a blanket, like grown-ups did. After we'd been in bed for a few minutes, June would spring up, Can't you keep still, woman? saying, That's baby crying. I must go and get her. And baby would then have to be introduced between us under the bath towel. Poor babby wabbies. What babby cold then? Ah, ah, I loathe this. It's bad enough to have a woman in your bed, but to have her bastard offspring as well is intolerable. Can't you keep that baby quiet, woman? After some days of cohabiting in this manner, June decided one day that we'd get married. As I'd heard much from my mother about the honourable nature of the matrimonial estate, I had no objection. For the wedding, June wore a bit of old neck curtain over her head and carried a bunch of Shasta daisies. I pinned a bloom of Lucy Bertram on my shirt for the occasion. The wedding ceremony was conducted by Pam. Do you take this woman, June, Eleanor, Magnab, Maxwell, as your lawful wedded wife? said Pam to me. I do, I solemnly replied. And do you, June, Eleanor, Magnab, Maxwell, take this man, Henry Thomas Bassington Bradford, as your lawful wedded husband? I do, said June. For richer or poorer? Oh, I do, said June. Even though he is so poor, I love him. At this, I was furious. I was not going to be condescended to by any Maxwell. Just as good as you are, you cow, I said, using an insult I picked up from the Stanley boys, who frequently addressed their mother in this wise. I punched June. There were loud yells and shrieks, and June ran home in floods of tears. I was beside myself with rage. My mother came out to see what the matter was. She's a cow. She said we were poor. I'll suck her dick, I told my mother. My mother was, of course, horrified. I was made to go up to the Maxwells and apologise to Mrs Maxwell and June. I struggled and screamed and kicked as I was dragged up the road by my mother, so full of rage I was blind. Don't want apologise! She's a cow! No, don't apologise! She's a cow! I yelled, so that the whole of Fenton must have heard me. It was the injustice of it that so enraged me. If I were to be punished for stealing one of June's sweets or for pulling up pigtails, what else did they wear pigtails to, for goodness sake? Fair enough. But this was not the case. I was defending our family's honour, fighting for our pride. Yet my mother, the very person who should have been most grateful to me, was in the most craven way making me apologise. In an instantaneous moment of vision, I saw myself as an RAF pilot, fashionably moustached, handsomely uniformed, newly decorated with DFC and bar, brill creamed of hair, negligent of manner, and irresistibly modest of expression. On my arm, my mother clings to me, beautifully permed and gorgeous in her WAF uniform. By Jove, Henry, who's that gorgeous girl on your arm? say the other pilots enviously. Oh, it's my mother, actually, I nonchalantly replied. She's saying, you must be so very, very brave to have made so many kills on your sorties. Is it terribly, terribly frightening? Oh, it's nothing, actually, I reply. Our crates are better than theirs. Nothing to touch the good old spits. What she should have been saying was, Oh, Henry, 
You've been so, so brave to stand up to that horrid Maxwell girl. I do so love you. But instead of that, she was making me grovel to the very wretch who dared to insult us. I lay on the Maxwell's carpet and kicked my legs in the air and roared and roared with fury. Gradually, I began to perceive that my mother was not going to give way, nor was Mrs. Maxwell's petrifying and horrific Medusan stare going to abate until I had acceded to their demands. Eventually, I mumbled some kind of apology, muttering, You cow, under my breath, much as Galileo murmured, But it moves, when recanting his heliocentric theories under the threat of Cardinal Bellarmine's torturers. June came round to a house once or twice more in subsequent days, hoping to resume our former pastimes. You cow, I'll suck your dick, I hissed at her. She ran off screaming. The sensation of power and justice finally having been done was most satisfying.